Hello, I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'd like to welcome you back to the Hoover Book Club, where we bring Hoover fellows and friends together to discuss their latest writings. Our guest today is Amy Ziegart. She's the Morris Arnold and Nona Jean Cox Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution and Professor of Political Science by courtesy at Stanford University. She's also a Senior Fellow at Stanford's Freeman Spoli Institute for International Studies, Chair of Stanford's Artificial Intelligence and International Security Steering Committee, and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. But wait, there's more. ABC Agart's also a book author. Her latest title being uh, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. Amy, great to see you and congratulations on the book. Great to see you too, Bill, and thanks. It's always nice to finish a book rather than just be writing a book. And that leads to my first question. I just listed countless things you're doing in and around the Stanford world. How do you find time to write a book? Well, COVID helped uh, because we couldn't get together and we couldn't travel. So I um, moved all my books to my home office and holed up, and that's how I was able to finish. It, It took a lot of, you know, structured time away from the office to get it done. And just a lot of uh, discipline, I guess, and just kind of keeping at it because it's look, I, I deal in column writing, but I'm writing in, you know, 800 word bursts here and there. But a book is a is a different creature. Well, I can't do what you do. I, I'm afraid of writing on deadline, to be honest. So if I have a deadline that's several years away, I, I can get it done. But if it's, you know, several hours away, that's another story. Uh, stick to what you do. What you do is thoughtful. You're not living in the moment. So well done. So let's talk about the book, uh, Spies, Lies, Algorithms. Let's break it down into categories. Amy, spies. What are we talking about when we talk spies these days? Well, the the let me take a step back because the purpose mm-hmm. of the book really is to inform a general audience about right. what the secret world of intelligence is. Spies usually right. get people's attention. And I think there are a lot of myths about what spying is, even the basic terminology. We call someone a spy when they're not really a spy. The spy is the foreigner that betrays their country for our cause, not the CIA officer that actually is running them. Mm -hmm. I think one of the main points of writing the book is to dispel some myths. So I'll give you like my top three myths of the intelligence community. Myth number one uh, is that um, intelligence is secrets. Right. Mm-hmm. Most of the intelligence actually is not secrets, right? 80% of a typical report is open source information. Right. Myth number two, intelligence is policy, mm-hmm. right? That spies are out there giving policy advice, right? Mr. President, you should do X, Y, or Z. They don't, they're not supposed to do that, and they usually don't. Mm-hmm. And I think the third, you know, sort of big myth is um, covert action is this bag of dirty tricks that we reserve for the, you know, the most horrible things that our government does. And right. in fact, that's not true either. We do everything overtly that we do covertly. What makes something covert is that the U.S. government ha- tries to hide its official responsibility for it. So right. coups are covert action. Wars are overt action to, to uh, replace regimes. So we do everything overtly that we do covertly. Right. So what comes to mind, Amy, is uh, this documentary that's out right now on Oliver Stone in the movie JFK, uh, which just is celebrating an anniversary. And it gets into two things. Number one, how Stone made the movie. But secondly, it's Oliver Stone opening his head and revealing what he thinks about the JFK assassination and Vietnam and intelligence. And so before you know it, you're on a very dark road of what the U.S. government does and doesn't gun. And now reliving the days of the CIA and Cuba and trying to feed Fidel Castro poison cigars and things like that. And so that's what you're getting ahead of just the public is being fed a lot of information that's maybe not quite accurate. Yeah, and what we see, Bill, as you know, in, in public opinion polling is this dramatically rising belief in conspiracy theories of all types. So one right. of the most stunning polling results I found was that even a few years ago, 25% of Americans believe 9-11 was an inside job by the U.S. government. A yes. quarter of Americans believe that. So a lot of what I'm trying to do is dispel these, you know, crazy conspiracy notions about what the intelligence community is really doing. Right. But that also leads into technology. We'll get that in a second. I mean, you take that poll of a quarter of Americans think that 9-11 was an inside job. I think the actor Charlie Sheen was a big proponent of that theory. Uh, I'm not sure what polls say about people thinking about vaccines these days, but I'm sure there's a healthy portion of the population who thinks that vaccines exist for one thing, and that's to allow Bill Gates to microchip you. So... You know, I, so I don't know if it's technology is driving this per se, or maybe it's the media and pop culture, Amy, but this is what I think you're getting at at your book. It's just, it's a lot of, a lot of what the government does and doesn't do on intelligence is sort of polluted by what pop culture gives us, what academia teaches us. 
Yeah. So what it's, it's, I'm glad you raised that bill. Cause what originally got me interested in writing the book, which was many years ago when I really started thinking about it was a yeah. poll I did of my college students at the time at UCLA. And on a lark, I just asked them a bunch of questions about intelligence and then what their television and movie viewing habits were. And what I found was that a statistically significant percentage of them um, were affected by their spy-themed entertainment, or at least there were correlations. Those who said they always watched the show 24, for example, with Jack Bauer, were right. far more willing to advocate really aggressive intelligence policies like uh, waterboarding, for example. Right. And so what I found, the more I dug into this, was that spy-themed entertainment had actually become adult education. And I found all sorts of evidence about this in, na in national polls and actually in the policy world. Okay. Uh, so the book, you talk about espionage going back to the days of George Washington. So it seems as government has, shall I say, a rich tradition of being involved in espionage. But very simple question, Amy, how does espionage differ today versus it did back in the days of the founding fathers? Oh, that's such a good question. In some ways, it's really similar, more similar than we might think. So um, we think about information warfare as an internet invention, but in fact, right. Benjamin Franklin was really good at information warfare. He cranked out fake news, literally fake news uh, right. articles from his Paris basement. Mm -hmm. It's different today primarily, I would say, in three ways. Mm -hmm. Number one is speed. Everything's moving faster now. The speed right. of data, the speed of insight, the speed of decision. So espionage has to keep pace with what decision makers need to know and when they need to know it. Mm -hmm. So everything is accelerating today. That's a really hard challenge, I think, for intelligence agencies. Right. The second is scale. So if we think about, I have a chapter in the book about traitors and counterintelligence. You know, it used to take years for people to smuggle documents out in their pants and in garbage bags and all sorts of crazy ways to, to try to betray their country. Right. But now traders can download documents, millions of documents in a matter of minutes or hours or months. So the scale of espionage and particularly counterintelligence challenges is completely different. And I'd say the third key difference with espionage today is that there's been a democratization of capability. It used to be that, that superpowers like the United States had a real advantage in espionage, right? Mm -hmm. Only the US government really, and maybe the Soviet Union, could launch billion dollar satellites and have massive capabilities of code breaking and code making. Well, now anyone can gather that kind of data and anyone can analyze that kind of data. AI capabilities are available on the internet. They don't require a degree in computer science. We have satellite imagery. We can all, you know, if you have, an ac if you have access to the internet, you have access to Google Earth. So there are, and, and events are live tweeted, right? So we can track things on Twitter. So now we have to think about intelligence competitors today mm -hmm. being much more spread out and it's a much more crowded playing field for US intelligence agencies. Okay, so who are the competitors? Well, the main competitors are, are, are of course nation states, but anybody can do this now. So if we think about on the good guy side of things, right? right. And we think about nuclear threats, there are all sorts of people outside the US government that are tracking nuclear threats and, and they're doing a really good job. Some of them are colleagues at Stanford, right. but you know, in the in the past year, for example, news came to light about these hundreds of Chinese nuclear missile silos that were previously right. unknown. Mm -hmm. Well, that came to light because of people without security clearances, without right. access to classified information, just using commercial satellite imagery and their expertise and right. posting it online. Right. So these are people who uh, look at Google Earth shots of Chinese naval yards and North Korean missile sites and whatnot, and then say, look, something looks bad. But why are they doing this, Amy? Why isn't the U.S. government or is the U.S. government doing this? We just don't know about it. You mean, is the U.S. government tracking these things or is the U.S. government working with these people? Right. It's a little scary to think that some individual, not a vigilante, but an individual, Amy, is looking at Google Earth and then reporting that, look at these Chinese ships being built in the naval yard. And the thought is, does U.S. government know this? I'd like to think the U.S. government's a step ahead of that, of that individual. So the U.S. government is aware of what's going on. And I would say in, in many cases, partnering with non-governmental nuclear sleuths, as I right. call them. Right. So there are partnerships, some are more formalized than others, but you put your finger on a key point, Bill, which is that right now, this ecosystem, at least in nuclear security, is dominated by Americans and our Western allies. Mm -hmm. That will not be the case in the future. 
right. it's open. Anyone can join this world. And we've already had instances where, um, shall we say, less benign actors or nefarious actors are deliberately trying to inject uh, falsehoods um, into this ecosystem in the hopes that the U.S. government will fall for it. So it's going to get more complicated. There will be bad actors and more of them in this ecosystem in the future. And the government's aware of it and trying to figure out ways to engage more productively with this non-governmental ecosystem. Right. Let's talk about the U.S. government intelligence apparatus. Amy, I was watching the Army-Navy football game this weekend, and during the third quarter, a commercial came up, and the commercial was trying to get you to join the Army to get involved in counterintelligence to stop hackers. And then it showed on the tagline, it showed all the branches of the armed services, including Space Force. That got me to thinking, who drives the train these days? Is it is it the military? Is it the NSA? Is it the CIA? Is it Homeland Security? We seem to have a lot of entities devoted these days to the great uh, umbrella of intelligence and counterintelligence? Well, the unsatisfying answer who drives the train today is uh-huh. it depends. Okay. Right? So um, we have 18 different agencies in the U.S. intelligence community today. That number often stuns people, 18 agencies. We, we mm-hmm. hear about the CIA and maybe the NSA, but there are lots. Right. Um, and that's much higher than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So whenever we have a crisis, the tendency is let's create a new agency for that. Right. Uh, and the result is it's really hard to coordinate them all. So nominally in charge of this behemoth community is the director of national intelligence. Mm-hmm. That's getting better, but the DNI right. has only limited control over budgets and people. Mm-hmm. And as you know, in Washington, those are two very powerful levers. If you can't control the budget and you can't control the people, you're in the business of trying to persuade and cajole, right? Right. Not direct and command. Um, And so it's a work in progress, how this community works together. Mm -hmm. And do you think the 18 need to be folded into a dozen or a six or would you, would you downsize that? Or would you, would you create a super agency to walk over the 18? How would you streamline this? Well, streamlining is hard, but you know, people arm wrestle over this all the time, right? Right. Do we have too many? Do we not have enough? Um, the benefit, I'll give you the, the argument on one side, which is that mm-hmm. the reason we have so many agencies is they provide tailored capabilities. Right. So the Navy has different intelligence needs than the Army. Mm-hmm. And so the Navy should have its own intelligence unit to help it with its intelligence priorities. There's real right. truth to that. And different agencies have different special specialties. So CIA is human intelligence, right? Right. Um, National Security Agency is signals intelligence, so email, phone calls, of course. Right. Yeah. And specialization is, has benefits. So I always give the example of doctors, right? No one questions whether doctors should be specialized. You don't want your heart surgeon detecting skin cancer, and you right. don't want your dermatologist operating on your heart. So specialization mm-hmm. has benefits. The challenge, though, is how do you harness that specialization so you know what everyone knows? Right. That's the challenge. And that's where emboldening and empowering the DNI, which has happened over time, has paid some real dividends. But it's, is, still, it's still a challenge. And is it a challenge, Amy, getting the agencies to talk to each other? I, wasn't this one of the takeaways from 9-11 that there's just, the, there's just not cross-chatter within Washington about what intelligence we had? Yes. And that cross-chatter communication is much better than it used to be, mm-hmm. which is not saying a whole lot, right? Because the bar was low before 9-11. Right. Um, but it is getting better. I have a heretical idea, which I've had a lot of people sort of argue with me about, which is what we actually really need most mm-hmm. is a 19th intelligence agency. And I say that with some trepidation because of the coordination challenges we just talked about. Right. But the 19th agency would be dedicated entirely to open source intelligence, stuff that's publicly available out there on the internet. Because what's happened in our in, in with this emerging, you know, we were talking about technology, because of the advent of new technologies, right? The whole intelligence battleground has changed. Right. It used to be that secrets were more of a key. Secrets still matter, but now insights coming from harnessing lots of openly available data, and secrets will always be primary in secret agencies. So no no existing agency is giving public information the attention that it deserves. And you're not going to get that unless you get a new agency. Trying to harness the internet to be saying sounds a little bit like drinking from a fire hydrant in terms of collecting information. So how would you actually physically, would you just have an army of, pardon me, nerds and pajamas and basements around the world going through, going through, and how would you, how would you actually attack the internet that way? 
Well, a lot of it can be, you know, how can technology help us with technology, yes, right? Yes. How can things like AI tools um, augment the human analyst, right? We have just right. far too much data for anybody to process at any one time. Mm-hmm. Just to give you some idea, you know, the amount of data is estimated on earth to double every 24 months, right? right? That's an astounding level of data. But algorithms can help make sense of that data, right? So I'll give you a concrete example that happened actually at Stanford within the past year. So I have two colleagues who um, wanted to better understand trade between North Korea and China. Mm-hmm. And so what they decided to do was <clears throat> look at the imagery of trucks crossing between the border between these two countries. And let's go back several years, they thought, and let's analyze the truck traffic between these two, just to get a sense of what can we derive from looking at this. And so without any computer science training, they developed a machine learning algorithm so that the machine would automate the scanning of the trucks across the border. Right. And what would take a human analyst roughly a month to do, their very basic algorithm did in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the kind of benefit we can get from harnessing technology to understand this overwhelming crush of data. Right. But you would still need the human element to uh, eliminate what a certain somebody would call fake news. Absolutely. And when the idea is that you, if you use these automated tools, it frees up the human to do what humans can do best. No machine is going to be able to divine the intentions of North Korea, for example, okay. or to consider alternative hypotheses or to ask, why is this the case? Right. It can just have pattern. Pattern recognition is the real benefit of these tools. Okay, so where would that 19th agency, Amy, sit in the flowchart of the federal government? <laughs> You're really pushing me in a good way, Bill. So I would say the 19th agency would be independent. There's been a big debate about could you put such an agency in the CIA? Could you put it in the State Department? Right. I think it needs to be a standalone agency. And here's the thing. It should not be inside the beltway, or nope. at least not entirely inside the beltway. Because if you want to attract the best minds of tomorrow, you need to go where the talent lives, Mm -hmm. right? So imagine a forward deployed agency, which with offices in places like Silicon Valley and Austin, Texas and Denver, Colorado. And now you've got this open source stuff so you can experiment with new technology tools in a more um, ongoing way. So it's not just the stuff that an open source agency could provide. It's the people and it's the processes of innovation. Okay, so you want an agency that's independent and outside of Washington. Yes, you are a heretic. I am, indeed. <laughs> it's, it's time for heretical thinking, though. Okay, I want to read something that you wrote for Politico back in September, Amy. So this is my way of saying good time to grab the water if you've got it sitting by you. So here's what you wrote. This is on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Quote, 20 years after 9-11, the United States faces escalating threats from China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, conflict in cyberspace as well as physical space, and global challenges like climate change and pandemics. The CIA needs to regain the balance between fighting and terrorist enemies of today and providing the intelligence to detect, understand, and stop the enemies of tomorrow. Yes. And, you know, this is something where people inside the intelligence community have been Mm -hmm. discussing this balance for a long time. Right. Um, And it's interesting, Bill. I got a lot of feedback from that article, more than I have in just about anything I've written in the past couple of years. People inside the government saying that they thought this was exactly the case. So in intelligence, you have to balance between dealing with urgent and dealing with important threats. Right. And my argument was there's no organization other than the CIA, I mean, whose primary mission, primary mission is preventing strategic surprise. Right. And the more the CIA gets sucked into the day-to-day counterterrorism paramilitary activities and supporting them, Mm -hmm. the less time it has to prevent strategic surprise with all these other threats in the world. And so the balance has tilted far too much toward tactical warfighting intelligence. And that's not to say it's, uh, it's unimportant, but it has to be in balance. And the CIA's balance is out of whack and it needs to get back to a more balanced portfolio of activities. The last time the CIA's mission would have been examined, Amy, would have been what, the mid seventies? CIA's mission was examined pretty carefully after 9-11, and then after we had 9/11. this surge, right, of activity. And we got pretty good at the, right. the sort of support of counterterrorism activities. Mm-hmm. So it's a it was a success at one moment, but the but the uh you know the the threat landscape never sleeps. 
Right. And so we have to constantly adapt. And that's it's a moment, I think, for really uh, pretty dramatic change in intelligence today. I'm curious, Amy, about who goes to work for intelligence in the United States these days. My father, uh, may he rest in peace, went to the University of Virginia in the mid-1950s, Amy. And uh, as he told me one time, he said, the government was very present on the campus in three regards. One was the military. My father was ROTC, so a lot of kids there ROTC. The second, Amy, was State Department recruiting. One of his fraternity mates actually became a career foggy bottom person, just they wanted bright young men and women to go into foreign service. But then the third, Amy, was the CIA, which my father so would discreetly stop by once a year and encourage young men in particular to sit down and take an aptitude test to see if they had kind of what it took to get in the world of espionage. So is the CIA doing the same? Are they reaching around? Are they going around the country and looking for the best and brightest in campuses or where are they drawing talent? I think the CIA, to its credit, is increasingly drawing talent from across the country. Mm -hmm. So it used to be that it drew talent, I mean, back in the old days, from a very small set of schools, right? Mostly on the the East Coast, too. Those days are really gone. And I think the CIA is really recruiting from a much broader talent pool. And I think the Internet helps this, too, right? It's easier to, to go on the CIA website and see what it's about. Um, but there is, but there are still big problems with CIA recruiting. And Director Burns has talked about one of them publicly, which is mm-hmm. it takes too long to get people through the security clearance process, through the hiring process, and in the door. Two mm-hmm. years on average. And if you're talking about recruiting the best and brightest, they've got lots of other opportunities while they're waiting for those two years. And once they're in other jobs, it's hard, you know, it's much harder to then recruit them to go inside. So that lag time between when someone wants to join the agency and when they actually can has got to shrink. And Director Burns has said one of his primary goals is shrinking that time from two years to six months. Why does it take two years, Amy? Oh, I wish I knew the answer to that, Bill. Obviously, you have to vet somebody for security and all that and learn the ropes, but two years is a long time to find out if somebody is loyal to their country or not. It's a really long time. And the backlog is insane. Um, And I don't know why it takes so long. I don't know why we can't accelerate it. It'll be interesting to see if the agency can do it. I can tell you, I have a number of cases of former students who really wanted to serve their country and went through this process. And it took so long by the time they, they heard back from the agency, they had already committed to other things. Okay. Uh, Your thoughts, Amy, on the Trump administration's China initiative? This was the initiative they wrote out in 2018 to counter Chinese economic espionage. I think the Trump administration's idea that this is a problem is a correct diagnosis, right? Right. That I mean, you know, our universities are wide open. We know that China is committing rampant espionage. The FBI opens a new China counterintelligence investigation on average once every 10 hours. Right. So this is a real no kidding problem. Right. The question is, how do you attack it? And I think there's been a lot of criticism, justly so, that um, countering Chinese espionage can lead to xenophobia, can lead to racism, can lead to unjustly accusing loyal uh, American citizens, naturalized citizens of uh, betraying their country when, in fact, they did it. So correct diagnosis of the problem, concerned about the remedy not actually solving the problem and maybe making things worse. Yeah, I think Amy's MIT's technology review just took a study at the China Initiative and came to the conclusion that it might be had the right intention, but it found that just a lot of the cases have very little uh, obvious connection or just don't have an impact on national security. So it sounds like we're just casting an awfully wide net. And I think part of the fundamental, if, we're, if we want to dig deeper, why did this pro- program go so astray? Right. I think part of the problem is the FBI is still in its bones, a law enforcement agency. Right. It, it is designed to look for perpetrators who commit crimes after the fact. Mm-hmm. And this challenge is an intelligence challenge. Right. It's a challenge of piecing together information to try to prevent bad things from happening. And it requires much more analysis. And the FBI has always struggled to improve its analytic uh, capabilities. I think it's really telling that in the Bureau today, no analyst by FBI regulations can lead an FBI field office. Right. Right. So if you have to have operators, the folks with the guns are the only people who can lead an office, it tells you how little stock the agency puts on good analysis. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, let's talk about the FBI for a second, Andy. November 5th, a uh, federal jury convicts a gentleman named Yanju Zhu. He's a Chinese national deputy division director of the 6th Bureau of the, of the Jiangsu Province Ministry of State Security. He's convicted Amy of conspiring to and attempting to commit economic espionage and theft of trade secrets. Uh, what stands out here is he is the first Chinese intelligence officer to be extradited to the U.S. to stand trial. Uh, Mr. Zhu, as I mentioned, convicted two counts of conspiring and attempting to commit economic espionage, also convicted of conspiracy to commit trade secret theft. Along comes Alan Kohler. Amy, he is the assistant director of the FBI's counterintelligence division, and here's what he said, quote, this was state-sponsored economic espionage by the People's Republic of China designed to steal American technology to put Americans out of work. For those who doubt the real goals of the PRC, this should be a wake-up call. They are stealing American technology to benefit their economy and military. The FBI is partnering with over 50 government agencies, U.S. government agencies, to share information and investigative resources to stop the PRC's illegal activities. So now we've gone from 18 intelligence agencies, uh, Amy, to 50 U.S. government agencies involved in trying to track down Chinese bad guys. Well, it sounds like from the way you presented that, Bill, you share my skepticism that coordination across 50 different agencies is going to be seamless. So on the one hand, this is, on the one hand, this is encouraging. This is a whole of society problem. It's not a whole of government problem. Right. Um, And we have to have the FBI working in coordination with other agencies to do it. The question is, are we attacking this in the right way? Right. So- I have real concerns about how the Bureau is approaching this set of challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the ways that we should be thinking about it, well, there are a number of ways. Number one, the fact that there are, for example, tens of thousands of Chinese graduate students in the United States studying today. We want to encourage brain drain from China, right? I want those students to come here, stay here, get a visa, become Americans and support our country. But the fact that there are 35,000 Chinese graduate students in STEM fields tells me there are 35,000 American students who weren't good enough to get in. Mm -hmm. So part of the challenge, part of dealing with the Chinese counterintelligence challenge is figuring out how we up our own game. Mm -hmm. How do we have our own education system produce more people at the cutting edge of these fields? And how do we raise awareness to basic awareness about keeping our key uh, technologies uh, within the country. So I think we, you know, education can go a long way toward dealing with counterintelligence challenges. I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. If I'm concerned about a counterintelligence issue on the Stanford campus, who do I call? What are the protocols? Where's the brain trust that figures out the policy so we can, we can adjudicate between the costs and benefits of taking one step or another? And are those consistent across American research universities? There's a lot that's unknown and undeveloped because there's this sort of third rail um, sort of, um, I think, attitude about Chinese espionage. Chinese espionage is real. That's not to say that every Chinese uh, graduate student should be put under suspicion, but it is to say we need to think hard about the best way to attack this problem. Well, there's only way to look at the story of Mr. Xu, Amy, and that's that he was caught red-handed and uh, justice has been delivered. Um, and you can either see this as the preview of coming attractions or he's being held up as an example. If this is the preview of coming attractions, though, Amy, what I'm curious about is how does China respond to us cracking down on espionage? Do they start arresting Americans in China, for example? Well, it's interesting because China, because our espionage human intelligence network in China was blown. I mean, really blown Blown. several years ago, destroyed. Uh, And there's a big question about why that is, but there's no question that it happened. Mm -hmm. And our assets in China, many of them were executed. Many of them were imprisoned. And this is all publicly available information. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about a tit for tat response, one of the one of the you know silver linings on the otherwise dark cloud of the fact that our human intelligence network was blown in the past decade right. is that there aren't that many sources the United States has today in China for them to arrest. So I mean that's a pretty dark cloud, but I'm I'm you know grasping for silver linings here. You know, would China arrest Americans? Well, we've seen China arrest Canadian citizens in right. pure retaliation. Uh, for the arrest of a Chinese national in Canada. So I wouldn't put anything past uh, the Xi Jinping regime. 
Okay, let's talk Russia now. Uh, what Russia? Different end game. Russia is not after economic secrets. It seems Russia. Amy just seems after mischief. Russia also seems to be after money. If you look at these ransomware attacks, what do they have in common? They're not launched by nation states. Hackers are launched by criminal gangs with one purpose in mind. They want money, and the Kremlin seems to sanction what they're doing. So, how does the U.S. react to what's going on? What's coming out of Russia? Well, greed is a perennial motivator of all sorts of bad activity. Right. I think right. we've seen the, the Biden administration really struggle with this problem, understandably so. Ransomware is a really hard problem to attack right. uh, because, uh, because crime pays. And there's always going to be somebody who didn't install the patch or, uh, you know, configure their networks properly. So the victims are a plenty. Uh, and ransomware is going to continue. I think General Nakasone, the command of Cyber Command, has said that he doesn't see ransomware going away anytime soon. I will say, you know, the Biden administration, as you know, this fall held a um, ransomware essentially summit, a working group of uh, more than 30 countries around the world to try to collectively raise the costs of ransomware and develop common um, collaboration and approaches. And I think that's a promising start. We've got to raise the cost, make it harder for ransomware to succeed and improve coordination across like-minded countries to go after you know, major culprits. Right. So Amy, if the Cold War was defined by mutually assured destruction, destruction, could we say that cyber warfare is defined by what I might call mutually assured disruption? Because when you shut down a pipeline, you're not destroying the pipeline, you're just stopping the pipeline. If you take down somebody's grid, the grid will come up eventually. You're just using it for ransom extortion, if you will. Or am I missing something here? Can cyber actually be used in the same way you could use missiles to take out things? So I think cyber is actually not a world of mutual assured disruption. I think it's right. much worse. I think it's, it's asymmetric disruption. Okay. So we actually cannot hold other countries in mutual um, risk like we could with nuclear weapons in the Cold War, which kept the Cold right. War cold. We are asymmetrically vulnerable in the United States because we rely on computer networks and systems for everything in our society, for our economy, for our military, for our innovation, for our education, in a way that other countries don't. And we're also asymmetrically vulnerable because of our freedom of speech. So Russia can um, polarize American society by spreading false narratives about everything because we're open. And so we are disproportionately vulnerable because we are um, a Western capitalist democracy and we're vulnerable in ways that authoritarian regimes are not. So I think it's a much more complicated world in cyberspace and it requires less emphasis on deterrence, this mutual assured destruction or disruption, which we cannot actually win if we do that. And we have to get back to basics about defense, actually making our systems harder to penetrate and resilience, making them able to get back in operation uh, if and when they are attacked. So getting back to basics. Right. So there's right now, Amy, something of a three-way struggle between the UK, Germany, and Russia. And it's over the UK's desire to extradite a suspected spy for Russia who'd been working at the British Embassy in Berlin. Uh, reportedly, this is a German man who was convicted of passing floor plans of buildings used in the Bundestag and so forth. Uh, I'm curious to why Russia is engaging in espionage like this, Amy. To what end is this? Is this a reflection of Vladimir Putin just being a KGB guy and he likes to thrive this way? What, what is Russia's endgame with doing this? I wish I could get inside the mind of Vladimir Putin to tell you. Uh -huh. I don't know what his endgame is. I think right. he is a KGB guy. He never met an intelligence operation he didn't like. Right. Um, and he's very risk accepted. So mm -hmm. one of the things that strikes me about what Putin has done in espionage is he's violated the fundamental rules of the road that existed for for the entire Cold War. So you think about Moscow rules, people have talked about, you know, there were unwritten norms about um, that kept the guardrails in place during the Cold War. So, um, you know, we wouldn't kill a Soviet asset. They wouldn't kill an American asset. We'd, we'd imprison each other's spies and right. then we'd swap them, for example. Right. But think about what Putin has ordered, right? He tried to kill a former Russian military officer, Sergei Skripal, and his daughter living in London, right. right? Sent a hit team out to kill them both. I mean, that's extraordinary. And that's not the only time he's tried to do it. So right. what you see is a blatant disregard for prior norms and rules of the road. 
in just about every aspect of foreign policy. And you see Putin uh, sort of violating these things in every in every aspect of foreign policy. Right, but I'm curious as to what Russia's endgame here is, Amy, because we look at Chinese espionage and it's very simple. It's a, it's a competition for economic supremacy and military supremacy. So very geostrategic in mind, but I'm just not sure what the Russians are after when they're knocking around trying to get building plans of the German parliament. But I think, you know, you, as you, you know, rightly pointed out, China's very strategic. Right. Everything that China does is very strategic. Russia is much more tactical. There may be no strategic purpose for what Putin has has you know organized his KGB to do. It right. just could be to to muck up the works in other countries. Okay, uh, if it were as simple as to rate various nations' intelligence apparatus, where would you put the U.S., Amy? Are we are we the best in the world? Or are we in the top five, the top ten? Where would you rank us? I'd certainly put us in the top tier. I'd like to say we're number one because I think, you know, the United States is a pretty great country. Mm -hmm. I'm more worried, though, that China has surpassed us on the intelligence front in a couple of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked about a theft of, of uh, economic uh, trade secrets and intellectual property. This right. is a huge deal. We think that power today is not what it used to be. Power isn't military might. We have the, We spend the most on our military. We have the most powerful military in the world. But we're not the most powerful country in the world in the way that we used to be, because economic power is much more important. And so China is poised really to overtake the United States in terms of technology and economic power. There was a report issued about technological competition with China by Harvard just last week. And it's pretty scary, actually, to read those results. So I think China is largely um, leapfrogging the United States in dual-use technology because it has stolen its way ahead of us to a large extent. So I put China ahead of us in terms of that element of espionage, in terms of countering our own networks in China. Um, but I don't think it's a permanent advantage. And I think we have sources of strength that are enduring intelligence advantages. We have a, wide, we have a much more eclectic uh, workforce that speaks many different languages, comes from many different cultures. That's a huge intelligence advantage for us, for example. Right. Our open society and our innovation and our technological tools could be a huge advantage if our intelligence community can harness those tools and use them for insight. So we have the capabilities, uh, but I think we haven't exploited them enough in intelligence. Right. Where would you put Israel in this equation, Amy? Because if one thing pop culture tells us, the Israelis are really good at intelligence, be it tracking down Adolf Eichmann, uh, be it trying to disrupt Iran's nuclear ambitions, be it tracking down the uh, terrorists at Munich and so forth. The Israelis always complete their mission. They always get the job done. Israeli intelligence is superb. So in the top tier, I would put the U.S., China, Russia, and Israel. Okay. The Israelis are superb on the technical side. They're superb on the human side. They're superb at analysis. And by the way, they're very active at spying against the United States. So make no mistake about it. Our allies spy on us, and we spy on our allies with rare exception. Right. That's what I want to get to next, just the rules of the road. It's okay to spy on your allies. You know, there's a very um, small group of countries that actually don't spy on each other, and they're the five eyes, right? So it's the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Okay. Those five countries have a very close intelligence partnership. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, it's a jungle, and everybody is spying on everybody. Uh, and we know it. The French spy on us, right? We want to understand what EU countries are doing, what their political decision making is, where they're likely to go with respect to China. That's how this game works. And everybody knows it. OK. Does the United States spy on itself, Amy? What do you mean in terms of do we spy on ourselves? Do we do domestic surveillance of individuals? I'm curious in post 9-11 America in terms of worrying about Islamic terrorism, in terms of worrying about domestic terrorism, how does intelligence in the United States turn upon the American population? So the US intelligence community has very clear legal prohibitions mm -hmm. about domestic surveillance. So one of the things that's, right. that really makes the US stand apart is our intelligence services are not trained on um, or shouldn't be, and haven't, and with rare exception, haven't been on domestic surveillance, right? So if you think about Russia, right, Russia's intelligence apparatus is aimed at its own people, like deliberately so. So the FBI is the only organization in the US intelligence community that has as part of its mandate domestic intelligence collection. 
So it is with rare exception that an agency like the National Security Agency would collect deliberately against Americans. And when it did after 9-11 with the widely reported warrantless surveillance program, it was a big controversy, not just among the American people, but inside the NSA itself. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of debate and concern about targeting. Uh, and, and remember, this wasn't the content of communications. I want to be clear. Right. This was the NSA's metadata program, which was to understand basically your telephone call records, the mm-hmm. number you called, how long the call was. It wasn't the content of the call. It wasn't the identity of the of the person that you were calling. And the idea was, could we then query that data? Could NSA query that data? to see if terrorists in custody had called any of those numbers or numbers related to those numbers. So this was the program that generated a lot of controversy, a rare exception in intelligence targeting Americans. uh, And that program was ended by Congress. So ultimately, I think the oversight regime worked, right? Right. What are the lessons of the Patriot Act, Amy? I think the lessons of the Patriot Act are for the intelligence community to be more forthcoming about what it's doing earlier. And that is an unnatural act for intelligence agencies. Right. But Michael Hayden, who ran the National Security Agency, said he believed it was a political mistake for the agency not to share with Congress and the American people sooner what it was doing so that if people knew about it, Uh, they would have, after 9-11, supported it. I think he's right about that. And that tendency of intelligence agencies to keep too much secret Mm -hmm. actually hurts the public trust they have to have to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, looking at American presidents, Amy, I think there was one, George H.W. Bush, who was a director of the CIA at one point. I think every other president, Amy, though, who came into office did not have that kind of intelligence background. Maybe Joe Biden is familiar with the intelligence apparatus through his years in the Senate and vice president and so forth. But it seems to me, maybe a lot of presidents start from scratch when they come into the White House and they first get their intelligence briefings and they deal with the intelligence community. And sometimes presidents find frustration. Jack Kennedy famously wanted to break the CIA, I think he said, to a thousand pieces after the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Uh, you're nodding your head in accordance here, I see. Um, how should an incoming president face prepare for the intelligence community? Um, is it as simple as trust what you get? Is it is, should we go back to the days of Gorbachev and trust verify? How does a president learn to accept the intelligence he or she is given? So I think presidents need to understand that intelligence isn't a crystal ball, right? Uh, because all presidents want intelligence to tell them what's going to happen, right? right? And nobody can do that. Presidents, I think, also need to understand that, as Susan Gordon put it, Sue Gordon was the number two intelligence official from 2017 to 2019. She said, Mm -hmm. all presidents are frustrated because we steal their decision space. Mm -hmm. And by that, she means that um, intelligence agencies have the job of telling presidents things they might not want to hear, how their policies might not work how things are going in foreign countries in ways that the president doesn't like. Um, And so presidents need to understand that. But I I would argue that skepticism is a good thing for presidents to have. Mm -hmm. Intelligence agencies don't have a monopoly on insight of what's going to happen in the world. They're doing the best they can, but there is no such thing as ground truth in the intelligence business. So skepticism is healthy. Debate is healthy. And so I think for a president to use intelligence effectively, they should be pushing the intelligence community. How do you know this is the case? What are the alternative assessments? How would we know if you're wrong? And I think that kind of dialogue between the president and his intelligence community is actually a very healthy thing to have. Okay. Uh, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, and Iraqi WMDs. What do they have in common? Intelligence fiascos, one way or another. Is there a common thread between them, Amy? The common thread is, at least for me, you know, I, I see everything through an organizational lens. So for me, the common thread of those is that the organizations were the problem. Mm-hmm. That if you could have put Superman in charge of intelligence in Pearl Harbor and 9-11 and Iraq, and you still would have gotten intelligence failure. Why? Right. In the case of Pearl Harbor, we had clues of Japan's intent and uh, the likelihood of attack at Pearl Harbor, but we didn't put those together in time, Mm -hmm. right? So it was too fragmented. That's why we got the Central Intelligence Agency. Mm -hmm. 9-11, same thing. 
We had 23 opportunities to penetrate that plot. It's research I've done. Uh, and the CIA and the FBI missed every single one, mm-hmm. in part because they couldn't share or coordinate what they were doing. WMD is a little bit of a different story. There, mm-hmm. it was really a collection failure. We didn't collect the right information and an analysis failure, right? So our intelligence analysts didn't scrub their thinking enough to ask, um, what if Saddam were actually not developing his weapons of mass destruction? So, um, but again, this was an organizational problem. And so there were a lot of reforms after Iraq to improve that. So for example, dissenting views are now much more um, uh, highlighted in national intelligence estimates before they were relegated to footnotes. Well, right. you know, people are busy and they don't tend to read footnotes. So if you have a dissenting point of view, it needs to be in the body of the text. Um, as a result of Iraq now, there's a much greater attention to how confident our intelligence analysts in the judgments they're making. So organizational problems with organizational solutions. And are people willing to speak up within the intelligence community? Again, pop culture shows us a movie, Argo, for example, where Ben Affleck plays the CIA operative who boldly stands up and says, by God, we're going to do it this way and shoots down the other ideas and so forth. In other words, you get this kind of a heroic idea in part because he is willing to buck the system or really defy, defy the status quo. But does intelligence really work like that in real life, Amy? I think when it works well, it does. Yeah. Right. So one of the great examples of people coming to different points of view was the hunt for Osama bin Laden. Ah. So there's this great moment, this White House Situation Room meeting, where President Obama goes around the room to his intelligence officials and says, what do you think the percentage is mm-hmm. that this guy we've been following, who they've dubbed the pacer, right. is actually Osama bin Laden? He goes around the room and the, res- and the estimates, they've all read the same intelligence, right? Right. The estimates range from 40% we think it's Bin Laden to 95% we mm-hmm. think it's Bin Laden. Now, I think this is fascinating, right? And, and why is this the case? Well, it turns out that the percentage estimates really hinge on the analyst's prior experience. Right. So those who were burned by Iraq WMD were much more skeptical that the pacer was actually Bin Laden. Those who had come off recent intelligence successes in counterterrorism were much more confident in what they had. Same information, different probability estimates. That is a good thing, right? To have people talking through their differences and why they believe what they believe. Okay, so getting back to the idea of getting information, yes or no, from culture, does Zero Dark 30 get that whole story right? Oh boy, you know, I could go on for a long time about Zero Dark 30 and why Mm -hmm. that movie makes me crazy. (laughs) So no, the short answer to your question is, no, Zero Dark Thirty does not get it right. So quickly, what, what did it get wrong quickly? So it actually, the scene that I have to, that I have just told you, this meeting about is the pacer Bin Laden or not, is one of the good scenes of the movie. They actually right. capture that really well. Um, and there's this wonderful part in the scene where the, the main analyst named Maya says, you know, it's 100% that it's Bin Laden. And then she right. says, well, okay, 95% because I know certainty freaks you guys out, right? That's, right. that's very you know, true to life. Mm-hmm. The, the part of the movie that really upsets me and disturbs me is that it gives the impression that um, enhanced interrogation methods, very controversial methods, which some regard as torture, were the critical key, the key to finding Bin Laden. Mm-hmm. And in fact, not only do it's not, don't take my word for it, the acting CIA director when the movie was released, a guy named Michael Morell, Mm-hmm. also was so concerned that the movie portrayed itself as a documentary, right? Because it right. starts by saying, based on firsthand account of actual events, right? right. That sounds much more documentary-ish than Hollywood-ish. Yes. He had to write a memo to the CIA workforce clarifying right. that the movie was not factual. Right. And he focused on this specific issue, that there were multiple streams of intelligence that led to bin Laden. And that these detainees and harsh interrogation techniques were only one part of what led to bin Laden. So when the head of the CIA has to write a memo to the CIA about the CIA, that movie is not just a movie. 
Okay, I think we should start a new podcast for Hoover, and that's just you and I sitting down and picking apart intelligence movies. Argo has the same problem. You see, the ending in Argo, the real-life version of what happened in Argo, as you know, just is nowhere near as dramatic as them sitting on that airplane and the Iranians chasing them down the tarmac and so forth. But, you know, only in Hollywood, I guess, you have to have drama. Right. I think I like the idea of a separate podcast dissecting intelligence movies because everyone loves movies. And I love having it as my homework to watch more spy-themed movies. So I love them as much as the next person. We could go down James Bond, too. Apparently, he's going to be transgender in the next outing or something like that. There's going to be a politically correct James Bond in our future. Well, the last James Bond movie was horrible because who wants to see James Bond sort of? Well, first of all, I don't want to you know give any spoilers to our to our listeners. Um, But, you know, you don't really want to see James Bond end, uh, nor do you really want to see James Bond as a family guy. I don't think so. I don't think that's true to character. It's funny, actually, they married him in one, I think it's the George Lazerby movie where they married him off and just the audience did not like it. Well, I thought they killed his wife pretty, pretty, pretty soon thereafter. Well, they did. (laughs) Apparently the audience (laughs) approved of that as well. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so you put out a book in which you're trying to explain the history of espionage and trying to lay it out very clearly. Where else should people go to try to get, you know, separate facts from fiction? I think it's hard, Bill. I mean, I think it's one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I felt there really weren't very many places to turn. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things, one of the things I really tried to do in this book, which was hard, right. was to provide a balanced view of very controversial issues. Right. So we've talked about warrantless wiretapping and interrogation techniques. Mm-hmm. I think it's very hard to find places that will give you the most compelling arguments on both sides of the story. Right. Um, and so I took great pains to try to do that in this book because this is a textbook for undergraduates. So I'm teaching a class based on this book at Stanford in the spring. Mm-hmm. And I want my students to read both sides of the interrogation debate. And I want them to have to grapple with the evidence that each side brings to bear for its side of the story. And I don't think we get that in very many places. Yeah. If I if I had to, but in answer to your question, if I had to suggest where else should people turn mm-hmm. to understand intelligence, mm-hmm. I would encourage people to look um, at the annual intelligence threat assessment. It happens around February, March every year. There's an unclassified hearing before Congress. Right. And the head of the intelligence community actually lays out the best unclassified assessments about dangers confronting the country. And it's right there on Google. You can Google DNI threat assessment every year. And I think they're really insightful documents that shed a lot of light on how the intelligence community is thinking. Mm -hmm. Is your class unique in America in terms of teaching kids about intelligence? Do other schools go down the same road? It's unfortunately all too rare. So one of the things I did was I looked at how many of the top 25 universities ranked by U.S. News offered any courses on intelligence. And the answer is less than half of them do. And in fact, I found that more universities offer courses on the history of rock and roll than intelligence, which Mm -hmm. I say now gives undergraduates a better chance of learning about U2 the band rather than U2 the spy plane. So we have an intelligence education crisis in this country. And one of the things I'm doing with this class is I'm developing all sorts of materials, including a simulation that I'm going to make available to anyone who wants to teach a class on intelligence so we can do a better job of educating the next generation. Okay, so if, if I tasked you with creating a Rushmore of intelligence in America, uh, four figures who go up on the side of a mountain saying, this is the story of American intelligence, who would you put up there? Ooh, uh, well, first I'd have to put George Washington, no mm-hmm. question. He was an avid spy master mm-hmm. and uh, he was better at intelligence actually than waging warfare on the battlefield. Um, so Washington would certainly be up there. Mm-hmm. Um, Second, it's a good question. I would probably put, this may be an an unusual choice. Um, I would put a Russian who betrayed the Soviet Union to help the United States. And his name was Dmitry Polyakov, Polyakov, Mm -hmm. codenamed Top Hat. His information was so important and he didn't do it for the money. He did it because he believed in America. Mm-hmm. His information was so important. CIA officials described it as like Christmas every time some of his information came. He was betrayed by a CIA mole named Aldrich Ames, and he was right. executed. So uh, I would probably put him up there as someone who courageously um, served the right side of history. 
Mm -hmm. so, so I have George Washington and Top Hat in there. Okay. I'd say uh, Frank Church, the head of the Church Committee in Congress in the 1970s. The late senator, from, late senator from Idaho. Yeah. He conducted the most serious, one of the most serious and sweeping investigations in history. It revealed some of the darker days of our intelligence community, spying on Americans, assassination right. plots above. You mentioned exploding cigars, uh, assassination attempts against Fidel Castro. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that committee, we have the oversight regime today that um, has really helped, I think, uh, U.S. intelligence, both in terms of garnering trust and uh, curbing excesses. So I put Frank mm -hmm. Church up there. Um, and then I'd say George H.W. Bush, right? You mentioned one of the, you know, the only president who served as CIA director really understood the intelligence community uh, and supported it at a very challenging time as the Cold War was ending. Very interesting. Okay, good choices. All right, final question for you, Amy. Uh, your class next spring, let's say that you do what all professors aspire to. You inspire your, your students. And a student comes up and says, Dr. Ziegart, I am so inspired by what you've taught me. I want to get into espionage. So what's your advice? If I'm if a young person wants to get an espionage these days, what should the young person do? Well, I would first ask that student, what kind of espionage? Do you want to analyze intelligence or do you want to go out and convince people to spy on behalf of the United States? Those are two very different paths. And actually, maybe for that pro-American espionage or anti-American espionage, <laughs> whose side do you want? <laughs> Right. Okay. But very different skill sets, very different personality types and a very right. different career path. Mm -hmm. And if they do want to do it, I would encourage them to apply to the right. Central Intelligence Agency or to other intelligence agencies. There's no more important time for mm -hmm. intelligence than today. Right. And I would also encourage the student, you know, students today don't want to be lifers. They don't want to spend 25 years in one career. Right. But you can start in the intelligence community and then move on to other careers and serve your country in other ways. It's awfully hard to start in a different career and then move into the intelligence community. So start where you can. And I would say start by serving in the government. That's an interesting thought, Amy. You know, the Washington's uh, full of so-called bellway bandits, people who check out on the military after 20 years and use what they learned in the military to go into government-related work. But if I'm checking out of the CIA after 20 years, what transferable skills do I have in the private sector? Well, one of the things, Bill, that's interesting is you have to get your resume approved before right. you leave. Right. So you may not even be able to say what transferable skills you have, right? So that's a challenge for getting a job once you leave. Right. But I would say if you're on the analytics side, the transferable skills you have are analyzing really difficult problems, mm -hmm. right? That's the critical thinking that we say that we like to teach undergraduates at Stanford and we like to teach our graduate students. CIA analysts get that, you know, in, uh, in spades. Right. So I think those are incredible tra transferable skills. Working with people, you have to work with other people. Intelligence is not a lone ranger enterprise, right? right. You have to put... Uh, your heads together with others and dealing with dissent, which I think we know um, usually provides better outcomes, whether you're in business or whether you're in the government. So those are three really important skill sets that I think analysts inside the agency get. Okay, final question, Amy, uh, if we could get the President of the United States to read your book and I could get you quality FaceTime with the President, what would you tell him about intelligence and what improvements would you suggest? If I could say one thing to the President, it's that this is a moment that requires transformational change in the intelligence community. Business as usual is going to set the United States back by generations. This is a moment of technological change unlike anything we have experienced. We have never had so many pathbreaking technologies converging at the same time. AI, the internet, commercial satellites, quantum computing, synthetic biology, just to name a few. It is an adapt or fail moment for the intelligence community. And the adaptation required means harnessing open source information and getting out of only being in the secrets business to the extent that the community has been. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Do you think the government gets this? I'm at heart an optimist. I think many people in the government get it. The mm -hmm. question is how do we get from here to there fast enough to make a difference? I see um, real movement on uh, adopting new technologies inside the intelligence community, but mm -hmm. we have to run faster. I'm an optimist, but I'm impatient for change. 
Okay. Speaking of optimistic, I hope you have a great book tour handling this. I hope COVID doesn't treat you too roughly out there on the book trail and you get to do a lot of events and sell a lot of books. Thanks so much. Okay. Well, Amy, again, thanks for joining us today on the Hoover Book Club. And more importantly, thank you for all you do on behalf of the Hoover Institution. The title again of Amy Zegard's book is Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. If you want to follow Amy on Twitter, yes, she is there. Her Twitter handle is at Amy Zegard. I'll spell it out for you. That is M-A-M-Y-Z-E-G-A-R-T at Amy Zegard. You can also sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which will deliver you the best work of Amy Zegart to your inbox every weekday. Uh, very simple to do that. Just go to hoover.org, click on the publications tab, go to where it says Daily Report and subscribe. And anytime Amy writes or says something, there you are. No intelligence gathering there for you folks. It's right there in front of you. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Bill Whalen. Thanks again for watching today. And we'll be back soon with another episode of the Hoover Book Club. Mm-hmm.